is no place on earth where a dad's not going to make an impact. The question is, what will the impact be? And even a dad who goes home to be with the Lord early still can make a great impact. Amen? All of us as dads. If you're a dad, you've already made an impact. The question is, what will be the impact going forward? And we have that opportunity. Because we're still alive. Amen? Those of us that are still alive, we still have the opportunity to be the dads that God would desire us to be. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 35. If you're with us on Mother's Day, I told you we would uh, do something special for the dads as well. And uh, did a message called Thank God for Moms back on Mother's Day. And we looked at a, a, a very obscure woman in Scripture. Uh, we don't even know her name, if you recall, back in 2 Samuel chapter 20. She lived in the city of Abel. And today we'll look at a, a father and his sons, not as obscure as, uh, as the woman of Abel for Mother's Day, but not near as well known as most of the dads in Scripture. You know, if you ask people who are some of the fathers in Scripture, they would say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You know, they would have different ones. Maybe Joseph, the father of the earthly father of Jesus, and Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, David, the father of Solomon. But this dad would be less known to most people, though if you've read the whole Bible or if you've read the book of Jeremiah, you've stumbled upon this particular dad and his sons. So if your Bibles are open to Jeremiah chapter 35, I'm going to start with verse 4. We'll, I'll, I'll give you the backdrop after we read, but let's start with verse 4. And Jeremiah the prophet is here, and it says, And I brought them... Actually, start with verse 5. This will save us a, a minute here. I'll, uh, again, I'll give you the backdrop. Starting with verse 5, Jeremiah 35. Starting with verse 5, Then I, that would be Jeremiah, set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. But they said... We will drink no wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father commanded us, saying, You shall drink no wine, you nor your sons, how about this, forever. You shall not build a house, sow seed, plant a vineyard, nor have any of these. But all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land which you are sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he charged us to drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, or our daughters. Nor do we build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have a vineyard, field, or seed. But we have dwelt in the tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came into the land, that we said, come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell at Jerusalem. Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instructions to obey my words, say the Lord? says the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed... For to this day they drink none, and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you did not obey. 
I've also sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Turn now everyone from his evil way, amend your doings, do not go after other gods and serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given to you and your fathers, but you have not inclined your ear nor obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandments of their father, which he commanded them, but this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of the host, of uh, God of Israel, Behold, I will bring on Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the doom I have pronounced against them. Because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard, and I have called to them, but they have not answered. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord God, host of, Lord God of hosts, God of Israel, because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak now by your spirit. Lord, your spirit that has given us the breath of life which we sang of earlier. Lord, you breathe life into us as our Heavenly Father that we would be those that would follow after you. You created us in your image. You've made fathers in your image. And Lord, all of us collectively have been made in your image. But Lord, you've created us to do that which you have designed, that which you've commanded for our proper benefit. And, Lord, for the benefit and the posterity of many that would come after us. Lord, we pray that you would be among us, mighty in power, Lord, speaking to each and every heart, and that your word would be quickened. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's word, Legacy of a Father. Legacy of a Father. And if you saw from the video, that dad, though he never met his son, has a legacy, doesn't he? His son will know his dad was a dad that gave all, serving. We all would desire, I would hope, to have a legacy, a legacy that not only we could look at and know is honorable, but more importantly, the Lord would look at and know it is honorable. Jonadab and his sons, as you saw from the text, they were known as the Rechabites. Uh, they were an object lesson for ancient Judah. God uses this group of nomadic people, a, a small tribe, if you will, of nomadic people that have been living in the land for a long time, the same amount of times that they actually came up with Israel into the promised land. We'll get to why that was. But the Rechabites, they were an object lesson to ancient Judah, and they're still an object lesson to us today as to what it looks like to live according to a different standard. That was the object lesson for Judah. It's the object lesson for us. A different standard than the course of the world. And not only that, to receive the blessing of God and a legacy that comes with surrendering our lives and our families and our plans to God, as opposed to ourselves. See, the world around us, it has its own standard. The Canaanites, before the Israelites got there, they had a standard. It was normal to have in the pagan religions there everything that, from the wickedness of human sacrifice 
all the way down to all kinds of immorality, dishonesty, debauchery, false idol worship, all of those things were the norm. But Israel was called to a different standard. They were called to serve the true and living God. And so were the Rechabites. Uh, both of them were called to the same standard. You know, you and I, whether, uh, whether you've been saved for a couple of months, a couple of years, whether you're a father, whether you're a mother, we're all called to the same standard, and it's the one that the Lord has laid out in His Word. We're called to God's standard. Now, the Rechabites, they, because of this man, Jonadab, they took on some very specific commitments that not everyone has made. It's not, if you've read the Bible, you know that it's actually not a sin to have a glass of wine. But if you also read the Bible, you know that some had taken, Nazarites, for example, took that vow never to let, not only wine, not even grape juice, nothing from a vine could touch a Nazarite's lips. Not even Welch's grape juice. It wasn't even so much about the alcohol. They could not have had anything from the vine. They remember the Nazarites took a vow not to take a razor to their head. Samson, of course, eventually when a razor was taken to his head, it cost him dearly, right? They weren't to touch any dead thing, nothing. They couldn't skin the animal after a hunt, nothing. They could not touch anything dead. The Nazarites had this special vow, but the Rechabites, Jonadab, called his family to a higher standard than the world. And you and I, although we're not called to Jonadab's standard, again, he serves as an object lesson that we are called to a higher standard. We as dads are called to a different standard than your coworker and your neighbor. Now, ultimately, they're called to the same standard. They just don't have the same father yet. Yet. Pray that they come to the Lord. Amen. But once they do, they're called to the exact same standard. So they serve as an object lesson for us. You know, Psalm 127, verses 1 and 3, you know this verse, but I'll remind you of it. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Behold, children are a heritage of the Lord. Unless the Lord helps us, dads, we labor in vain. That's either true or it's not true. And I can tell you it's true. And he's called us to a different standard. Yes, he, he's not necessarily called you to be a Rechabite. You're actually allowed to build a house. The Rechabites weren't. Jonadab said, we will build no house we will not drink wine. We will plant no vineyards. We will live as sojourners. But God in his infinite wisdom had given this to the Rechabites to serve as an object lesson, not only for their time, but also the New Testament church many, many years later. That they would serve as that lesson to be different, to be set apart. So when everybody else has fallen into a different standard, because Jerusalem and Judah, the people of Israel, they had abandoned God's standard. Did you see it in the text? God says, I keep sending prophets to you from morning till night. You refuse to listen. You do anything you want. You worship foreign gods. You have adopted a new standard. But look at the Rechabites. They won't budge. They continue to live 
exactly as their father Jonadab commanded. Now, I want to look at seven things from the text this morning. I could have done, we don't have time this morning, I could have drawn out 20 character traits easily from this text, but we don't have time to cover that many. So I chose seven that we'll look at in order. You don't have to write them down uh, at the front set here, or at the outset, because I'll go through them one by one. Let's look at the first one, that this legacy of a father the legacy of his father, and we're going to just call them men of. The first one, his sons become men of obedience. Look at verse 6. Now, Jeremiah had called them into the temple, by the way. Remember, they had fleed at some point. If you saw in there in verse um, 11, they had fleed the oncoming armies of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, also in uh, concert with some of the Assyrian army that he had conquered, were coming against Jerusalem, and this wasn't the final destruction of Jerusalem. If you're with us in our study of Ezekiel, uh, that would come later, but this is the beginning of Jerusalem being buffeted and people being carried away before it's taken place. It's coming from Babylon, but they had fleed in fear and in wisdom. We'll get to that as well. To Jerusalem, well, God takes them while they're there as an object lesson, tells Jeremiah, bring them into the temple and give them bowls of wine. And so he does. But they say, no, they're men of obedience. In verse 6, but they said, we will drink no wine, for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us. We've been given a command, and we're obeying it. We were told not to. Jeremiah, well, Jeremiah is a prophet of the Lord, a mighty man of God, and God's the one that told him to put the wine in front of them but he knows it's all for a test. He knows that Jeremiah needs to see their response, and other men need to see their response, and they say, no, we, we can't. We have chosen to obey our Father. Though there are certainly exceptions due to personal free will, we all have that free will, there's exceptions, but fathers who themselves are obedient to the Lord, like Jonadab was, will far more often produce children who are obedient as those children follow their father's examples. Would you agree with that? There's exceptions to every rule. There's some that say, I'm never, you know, may be a great dad. But for the most part, those that are obedient will more than likely produce obedient children. There was a four-year-old boy. He had heard his dad complaining about having to give his hard-earned money to the ministry of the church. Never mind, God gave him the job and actually gave him the health to actually do the job. But nevertheless, he, his, this little four-year-old boy had heard dad complaining that he had to give his money to the ministry of the church. Now, as the ushers passed the offering plates, they neared the pew where the young boy sat, and the boy leaned over to his dad. You know when kids try and talk quiet? doesn't always work. The boy leaned over his dad and said loud enough for everyone to hear, don't pay for me, Daddy. I'm under five. <laughs> Trying to help Dad save the money. He had observed. He knew what was important to his father. He knew what his father was obedient to or not obedient to. He knew. He watched and observed. Just like you saw that video, kids are watching even from a distance, even if we're no longer with them. They're still watching our example. What do we really believe in? Do we really obey God ourselves? Do we do it with the right attitude? Do we not do it with the right attitude? 
In 2 Kings chapter 10, we know a little bit more about Jonadab. We don't have time to go there this morning, but in 2 Kings chapter 10, we actually see that Jonadab, he's called Jehonadab. Uh, think of my name, Tim and Timothy. You know, you can actually have more than one variation of the same name, but Jonadab also went by Jehonadab, and he's in 2 Kings chapter 10. He assisted King Jehu, and get this, destroying the temple of Baal. He didn't have a home himself, but he helped destroy the temple, which was a, probably a magnificent structure. Uh, they destroyed the temple of Baal. They destroyed the worshipers of Baal, and they made the temple, which must have been pretty large. If you read 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 21, uh, it gives you some indication that people came from all over Israel into that temple, and they made it an ash heap because Jonadab worshipped the true and living God and stood against evil in his day. It's clear that Jonadab remained faithful, and he remained obedient. See, when you're faithful to God, you're obedient to God. We talked about this last week in the book of Luke. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord and do not the things that I say? Jesus made that clear. He said, you can't call me Lord and do nothing I say. Oh, Jesus, you're my Lord. All right, go and disciple. Go and share the gospel. Read, pray. Oh, I'm not doing any of that stuff but I still want to call you Lord. And he's like, well, if you can't do that stuff, am I really your Savior? Right? But Jonadab, he remained obedient to Yahweh, the Lord. And as the Lord had commanded him, he rejected idolatry, and he stood for righteousness. And his son saw it. You know, dads, when you stand for righteousness, when you call your family to a standard, they're much more likely to follow right? But if you don't stand for the thing, you can't say one thing and do another. But if you say and do the things that the Lord has commanded, when you give instruction, it'll be received on a whole different level. So we have some historical account of the faithful example of Jonadab, as I mentioned in 2 Kings. But Jonadab himself, he had a strong ancestral example. See, the Rechabites descended from the Kenites, the Kenites came from a man named Jethro. You ever heard of him? He was Moses' father-in-law. He gave Moses some of the best leadership and organizational efficiency advice found all in the scriptures, even to this day, men in leadership positions around the world, even unsaved men, can still learn and do because it's incorporated into books of all kinds, even uh, non-Christian books the wisdom of Jethro. But Jethro was a follower of Yahweh too. He worshiped the true and living God. We don't know when he came to worship the Lord, but it's clear he sacrificed to the God of Abraham just as Moses did, and they became good, close friends, Moses and his father-in-law Jethro. But from Jethro comes the Kenites and the Rechabites, and they come up into the promised land with Israel, but they choose, as Jonadab commanded, to stay tent dwellers sojourners, never calling the world their own. And see, we become men and women of obedience when we follow others who are obedient. It's so important that you have godly mentors in your life. It's so important that you have people that speak into your life, not just from a pulpit, but people personally in your life that actually challenge you to go on greater for the Lord that are obedient themselves, and you can receive, seen in their lives, their obedience, 
the faith in yourself to say, yeah, I can do that. I can go forward. Philippians 3.17, Paul said this to the church, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. God has always and will always put Jethro's and Jonadab's in our lives. Amen? Isn't that great? I don't look at those people and say, oh, they think they're really spiritual. I thank God for them. Because I know that they have problems and difficulties just like you and I do, and they've been able to persevere. That's why Hebrews chapter 11 was written. Let's look at the next thing. Still in verse 6. We'll use verse 6 to double up. Men of resolve. Men of resolve. See, I love their answer. We will drink no wine. Okay, Jeremiah's like, that didn't go over real well. God told me to put the bowl in front of you. It wasn't my idea. We will drink none. We will not. Fathers, one of the ways we become men is on the initial word of the first, uh, the initial word of that response. We. We. Might be something you don't pick up when you first read. We become men of resolve when we lock arms with other men of resolve. Isn't that great to know? We will not. When we lock arms with other men that keep us accountable, there is strength in numbers, isn't there? Isn't there strength in numbers? Anyone watching any of the World Cup? I saw one uh, where um, the ball was shot like a rocket, and the goalie was out of position. At the last second, and the camera angle caught it, another guy reached out his toe and lifted the ball out, and it, you has to, the ball has to cross the entire goal line. One other guy's back foot knocked the ball out before it was a goal. The goalie was in the wrong position, but another man had his back. Men of resolve lock arms with other men of resolve, and they say, we will not. Not just, I will not. There's times when you're going to need to say, I will not. But praise the Lord, God has given us a family of believers. So we can say, we will not. Jesus sent them out in twos, didn't he? Not as one. He sent them out in twos. He had 12, not one. He had 12 disciples. We, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he had 12 sons. There's Always this principle of God of making sure there's this strength in numbers. See, the Scripture tells us that iron sharpens iron. Iron doesn't sharpen itself. Air doesn't sharpen iron. Iron sharpens iron. You have to have two pieces of iron to make sure that you can sharpen it. can't sharpen yourself. It doesn't sharpen itself. No man is an island. And any man that is not in regular fellowship with other men of God is going to struggle to keep their resolve and going to struggle to keep their commitment and is going to struggle for higher standards. You have to be locked arms with other men that say we and put an arm around you and say we. Ecclesiastes 4.12, Solomon, the wisest man, at least intellectually, <laughs> he ended up drifting from the Lord, but in his wisdom God gave him this. Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and therefore, uh, and the threefold cord is not quickly broken. Strength 
in Numbers. Solomon making the point that two is strong and three is even stronger. We must, as dads, we must be leaders. That's true. But building a legacy is a team sport. It really is. I was so encouraged Thursday night. We had the bottom rowers there, and I counted 15 men there. Every single one of them were fathers. Now, I like when the, the single guys come and join us, too, because they need advanced training well, well before getting married. We have some that are already engaged here. Everyone needs that. But it was great because we can encourage one another in the book of Titus, chapter 1. But the church is a family. Men are to be a family. Fathers need other fathers. No one's written the book. Everyone's experience can say, I love to hear men that have gone before me, guys that are older than me, not only age-wise, like my father-in-law or my own father or other men that are godly. They save me unproductive time. They save me wasted motion, and they save me dumb mistakes that can be avoided by just simply listening to someone who's gone before me. And I'm sure that Jonadab knew a lot more than his sons did. And they said, Lord, we'll follow our father's advice, but we'll do it together. There's strength in those numbers. Soldiers, they persevere by picking each other up, don't they? Can you imagine going to battle all by yourself? No one there to pick you up if you receive a bullet wound. No one there to help you. They also, soldiers, remind each other when morale is low. Remember the oath. Remember the commitment. Remember the cause. See, our cause is Christ, isn't it? And we want our family and our brothers, their families, to be under the protection of God as we strengthen each other and encourage one another. Men of resolve. Let's look at the next one, verse 7. Men of separation. By the way, this all applies to ladies, too. I'm speaking to the dads primarily. But ladies, you need other ladies. Amen? You need encouragement from other ladies. You need discipleship from other ladies. You need strength in numbers, too. That's, again, family includes men and women, moms and dads, kids, singles, widows, whole nine yards. Everyone needs these things, but I'm speaking primarily to the dads. But these all matter to all of us as believers because... As I mentioned, the object lesson is not just for fathers, but for the church as a whole in the day we live in. But these men of separation, the, the last uh, word of verse 7, you are sojourners. They accepted that challenge. They accepted that call from their father to remain sojourners. The sons of Jonadab, they accepted this charge not to become attached to the land. Not to become attached to the land. Not to be in love with the land, not to build roots in the land. And that's not easy when you get a charge like that. And for us, it's not easy either. But we have to remember that this world is not our home and this world is not heaven. A lot of people think it is. They're fooled by beautiful pictures of Tahiti. And they are beautiful. I'd never like to go there. If any one of you want to pay for me to go there, I'm glad to go do an excursion, on, and I'll tell you how it was. But even though there's some beautiful place in this world, if this world is not heaven, ask the folks in northern Iraq. Ask the folks in North Korea. Ask the people in parts of Africa. Ask the people in slums of India. Ask the people in slums of Brazil, where the World Cup's taking place. They would tell you, no, no, this world can't be heaven. They might mistake it for hell, 
but definitely not heaven. When we live in a bubble and we attach ourselves too much, we have a wrong sense of reality. And Jonadab says, don't go there. You'll go the way of Judah. You'll go the way of Israel in the north. You'll go the way to the Babylonians. You'll go the way of the Syrians. Don't attach yourself to the land. Hebrews 11:13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were assured of them. But they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. Who is God talking about? All the people that served him prior. They all confessed. All the true converts, all the true followers of the Lord said, we do not belong here. We're pilgrims and we're strangers. The, when you and I think we belong here, something starts to happen in our lives and it's not a good thing. We start to turn to the world for their advice, their idea of what it means to live, their idea of what uh, peace looks like, which they don't have, their idea of what rest looks like, their idea of what fun looks like. All the things that God would say, but that's not my definition. And our number one job, dads, our number one jobs is to make sure that our kids don't pursue this world as their home. And they don't try and make this earth into their heaven. Because they pursue the world as their home and make this world into their heaven, they go the way of Absalom. Right? David's son. He wanted an earthly kingdom. He wanted all that the world had to offer. They go the way of Cain. They go the way of Esau. These are men that wanted what the world, the world was their home and it was their heaven. But we want our children to be heavenly minded. We want our wives to be heavenly minded. We want to be focused on eternity. See, Jonadab said, don't do these things. How long? Forever. When did God say he's going to bless them? Forever. Eternally minded. Not, well, till you're 40, and then cast off and have a midlife crisis. Then you can just take a little bit of time, do whatever you want, build for a while, then come back to your senses. No, he said, don't take a midlife crisis. Don't take a day off. You continue to stay separate. Fathers, if we're not focused on eternity, it's highly unlikely our families will be. Highly unlikely, if we're not focused on these things, that our family will be. Look at verse 8. Men of restraint. We've looked at a couple so far. We're taking note, men of obedience, men of resolve, and men of separation. Now let's look at men of restraint, our fourth, and these characteristics of the sons of Jonadab. Men of restraint, verse 8. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he charged us. Not some. All that he charged us to drink no wine all our days. Continuous, steady, day after day, locked arms with each other. One brother feels like bailing. Man, I, I really want to build a house. Other brother says, you can't. Dad told us never to build a house. I would love a glass of wine. No. We 
say no to these things. We say no to the flesh, but it looks so good in the glass, and all the other people around me tell me it tastes good, and it's good for my heart, and I read a study that says if I have this many glasses of wine a day, it's really good for this and good for that and all that, and they might say, well, that's all true, but not for you, because we have restrained ourselves in obedience to our Father. And you and I, Paul said he had to beat his body into, dis- into submission to stay restrained to the things of the Lord. It's not easy. We've got things coming at us from every angle, don't we? Anyone else get a lot of junk mail? Everything they send me, I want to buy. I don't have the money to buy, but I look at it, I'm like, that, boy, do I need that. And don't even walk into Costco, and you'll find everything that you never knew you didn't have. Like a gadget for everything. That would go in the drawer good. That would organize the garage. This would do this. All of these things, it's nonstop. And as soon as they've done inventing one, here comes another that's even better. Closely related to being separate, the Apostle Peter couples the two of separation and restraint. In 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, and he couples the two, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. Separation and restraint go hand in hand. The separated person becomes a restrained person. The restrained person becomes separate from the world. It's not that we can't live in the world. We're just not of the world. But we're restrained to the things that the Lord says, this is not for you. Another key part of restraint, for you and I to stay restrained, Dads, this is really important. For us to be restrained men of the Lord requires that we be content. Contentment. This is, I, I was looking at a study of, of the way people lived in the United States in the 40s and 50s versus how they live today. Saving versus spending. Quality time versus pleasure. It was just, a, it was a laundry list, and it was eye-opening the differences of just a few generations to today. Contentment is hard to find. No one wants you to be content. That's why they're sending you tons of stuff. Say, your life will be better once you buy everything in Target. But contentment supports restraint. When we're content, we stay restrained. A lack of contentment with what God has commanded and what God has provided. A lack of contentment in what he's commanded and what he's provided means that we'll fall to anything. And we'll give it up. We'll say, give me that bottle of wine, son to Jonah Dad. I'm building the house anyway. I know what Dad said, but I'm tired of living out in these tents. Everyone else is having a good time in the cities. They're enjoying it all. They have the houses. They've got the movie theaters. And we're out here in tents. We're building it. We're going to do it. We're tired of it. We're not content anymore. But no, his son stayed content, and therefore they stayed men of restraint all their days. 1 Timothy 6, 8. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. I'll read that again. That's 1 Timothy 6, 8, Paul writing to a pastor. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. How many people do you know are content with just food and clothing in America? Truly. How many people do you know are really content with food and clothing? It's still in the Bible. We can ignore it if we want to, but it's still there. And God is saying, that's my standard. 
Jesus said, don't worry about all this stuff tomorrow. You've got enough worries for today. And yet, we always need more, don't we? 1 Timothy 6, same chapter. Go forward the next two verses, verses 9 and 10. That was verse 8. Having food and clothing, with these we should be content. Now here comes the warning. Paul reiterates what happens when we're not content, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich, put in parentheses, you say, well, you say, I, I, I don't desire to be rich. Rich is Bill Gates. Rich is uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Rich is Donald Trump. Rich is Jerry Jones. I don't desire that. No, no, no. Put in parentheses beside rich, more stuff. That's everyone. It, rich, we get in our minds that the only, no, no, I, we, we have in our mind, this is what a rich person is. Since I don't desire to be Jerry Jones, he's such a, such a nice, humble guy up there. No, anyway, since we don't desire that, we feel pretty good about ourselves. But the Lord would say, that's not, what it really means is more, more stuff, bigger stuff, better stuff. Those who desire more fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. That's heavy at the end there, isn't it? Who wants to be drowned by destruction and perdition, which means damnation? For the love of money is a root of all kinds, not, you'll know, some people will say this, love of money is the root of all evil. It's not the root of all evil. It says the root of all kinds of evil. Human trafficking, slavery, drug trafficking, all that stuff is the love of money, right? But not just that, so is coveting. So is lying to your boss. So is cheating on your taxes. All these things, the love of money, the root of many kinds of evil, from, uh, for which some have strayed from their faith in their greediness, and they've pierced themselves with many sorrows. It's one thing for someone else to pierce us. It's another thing to do the damage all by ourselves. And the Scriptures has many examples of this. In 1 John 2.16 it says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of this world. All the things that the world has to offer, lust of the eye, pride of life. See, we by nature, all of us, every one of us were born with the same sin DNA. By nature, we all desire two things. It's in us. The Holy Spirit reverses it and gives us a new nature to actually die to this desire. But all of us have two natural desires. They're not good. They're natural. The Holy Spirit supernaturally turns us away from this. We automatically all desire the approval and recognition of other people. We do. We desire the approval and recognition of other people, either pats on the back, adulation, worship, approval, you're great, all your ideas are fantastic, you're smart, you're beautiful, you belong on the cover of Cosmo, all these things. We desire the approval and attraction or the uh, adulation or recognition of men, which is pride, which was Satan's original sin there when he wanted to ascend and be greater than God. Pride is number one. And then the second, we all desire the pleasure of things God has created, which can include people, stuff, creation. People will worship the created rather than the creator. There's a lot of people, I mentioned Tahiti, there's a lot of people that love Tahiti. They just don't like the God that created Tahiti. Right? 
that holds the whole universe in the palm of his hand. They think he's made some really cool stuff, and they said, it's so cool, we actually want to worship that stuff, not you. And not the sons of Jonadab. Jonadab said, you can't live this way. You must continue to serve the true and living God. Don't go after the stuff he's made. Don't go after the stuff that's made from the stuff he's made. Because everything that's made comes from what God has already made. People worship other people. They worship their girlfriend. They worship their boyfriend. They worship, you know, just television celebrities or all these things. So pleasure and pride, they go hand in hand. And out of those desires comes covetousness. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Covetousness. What is covetousness? More stuff. Better spouse. Newer technology. All those things are real in this world, aren't they? All those things happen. They all go back and feed the first one, which is pride. It all goes back to pride. See, remember in the Old Testament, there was two dads. Lot and Abraham. Lot was a father. And he led his family to Sodom, didn't he? Why? Because he wanted to satisfy their desire for more. It had better stuff. It had all the nightlife. It had better schools for his kids. It had higher opportunities. It had better income, better entertainment. It had the arts. It had it all. But Abraham, he stayed a sojourner in a tent. Which one do you think made the right decision? Lot lost his entire family, including his wife. He lost it all. His life savings were consumed in a ball of fire as Lord. But not Abraham. Not only had he rescued Lot before that once before, where he could have come to his senses and didn't, Abraham has the legacy that you and I are a part of. His descendants are like the stars of the heaven. Verse 8. Let's look at the, the next one. Men of leadership. Men of leadership, verses 8 and 9. Men of leadership, we've done these things. Uh, we've not drank wine all our days, our wives, our sons, or our daughters. Nor have we built houses to dwell in them, nor do we have a vineyard, field, or seed. They not only followed these things, but they convinced, by example, by love, by training, their sons, their daughters, and their wives were all in this together. The we was not only the men, it was the whole clan, the whole tribe, the whole family. Everyone said, yes, we will keep this standard together. Men of leadership. Dads, we're called to be men of leadership. We're called to lead. Even though we need the strength of numbers of other men, we still have to lead. Um, while a family was having their e evening dinner together, a little girl looked up to her father and asked, Daddy, you're the boss in our family, right? The father was very pleased to hear it, and he confidently replied, Yes, my little princess. The girl then continued, That's because Mommy put you in charge, right? <laughs> it's a lot of houses where that's the case. You know, women are a blessing. Moms are a blessing. Uh, my wife has just as much talent and intellect and, as I do and, and, and more than me in some areas. But I have a calling to lead and be the high priest, the father, the provider, the protector of our home. And she has a calling too. We both understand our calling based 
on the Word of God. Paul writes, and I'm reading this from the New American Standard Version. It reads different. I normally read from the New King James. But listen to 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Paul writing in the New American Standard Version, it reads like this. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Isn't that great? Act like men. Be strong. You know, Malachi 4, 6 is the last verse in the entire Old Testament before there is 400 years of silence. I probably refer to it three or four times a year. And if you haven't read it in a long time, I'll reread it to you. Malachi 4, 6, last verse, the entire Old Testament, 400 years of silence, then comes John the Baptist preaching about the Lord Jesus. And this is what the Lord says before a 400-year gap. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Silence, 400 years. Why? Because God says if there's one thing that gets off the rails, it's dads training their children. If there's one thing that has corrupted Israel in the past, it was dads not leading. Even David didn't lead as a father as he should have and could have. Samuel, we talked about this Thursday night. These were godly men, and yet they still deviated from their primary responsibility at times, training up the kids in their own house. If we don't have our own kids go to heaven, are you really going to feel great that everyone else's did? No. We have to have leadership and leading our families to the altar of the Lord. Many dads aren't leading. So moms, of course, will take up the mantle because somebody has to. And praise God, at least the moms do take up the mantle when the dads aren't. But they should be. We should be. Too many dads are content to lead from behind, which is not leading at all. Especially spiritually. They're really happy. Hey, mom, church, mom takes them to church. Mom reads to them. Mom prays with them. My job is just to bring home the bacon. Well, that bacon spoils eventually. Because if we don't invest in them spiritually, all those other things, ask lot, aren't worth much at the end of the day. Fathers, we're called to lead and disciple our children and our families. Yes, Jesus said go into all the world and make disciples, but that starts at home. Proverbs 22, 6 says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. You know, and we have to, we have to be wise we have to be engaged. We have to inspire and motivate our kids when we, when we train them. There was a story of a, a young boy, a uh, six, uh, 16-year-old, he got his driver's license, and he asked his dad, who was a, a godly man, if uh, they could discuss the use of the car. And his father took him into his study and said to him, uh, here's the deal. I'll make a deal with you. You bring up your grades, you study your Bible, and get your hair cut, and we'll talk about it. You know this is, can't be today. But anyway, this was some time back. After about a month, his teenage boy came back and asked again if he could discuss the use of the car. And they again went to the father's study where his father said, Son, I've been real proud of you. You brought your grades up and you studied your Bible diligently, but you still haven't gotten your hair cut. And the young man took a moment and said, You know, Dad, I've been thinking about this. And Samson and Moses both had long hair. To which his father said, yeah, and they walked everywhere. 
You have to. Dads, when you lead, it's your job to know more about the scriptures than your kids do. It's your job to know more. That if your son knows more about because he's learned in Sunday school than you know, that's a problem. You should be able to give the greater wisdom, the better guidance, pulling them to a higher standard. Ephesians 6.4 And fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, a lot, you know, my girls like to, you know, when I tease them, they'll say, hey, don't provoke us to wrath. They know that part of the verse. But that's really not what it's about, although it could be if you were, like, ridiculous about stuff like that. But it really is about provoking your kids to wrath as dads is neglect, ambivalence, not being engaged, not being intentional, unengaged, distracted, bigger priorities, as if there could be, than your children. Those are the areas that would be provoking them to what wrath? Well, the wrath of God when they actually say, well, if dad doesn't care, neither do I, I'll do what I want to do. If Jonadab didn't really care about them, it would be a lot harder for them to keep the commitments that they had been given. Men of leadership. Last two, we're wrapping up. Verse 11. You might have saw this in the text. You say, well, that, this one kind of strikes me a little bit. Uh, they became afraid these godly men became afraid of the armies of Babylon. The truths of Scripture are always a paradox. We're told to be strong in the Lord, right? We're told to be brave and act like men by Paul. I could give you many other verses that are similar. And yet at the same time, we're always told to never forget we're very weak and incapable and dumb as sheep. Have you ever seen a sheep? They don't smell good. They don't look good. They're not handsome, by the way. They got ticks all over them and all this kind of stuff. We're told to be strong and act like men, and we're also told to remember we're weak, and apart from me, Jesus said, you can do how much? Nothing. What a paradox. Because we're to be strong in the Lord. We're to stay humble. Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth, the Scriptures tell us, in his lifetime. No matter how long you faithfully walk with the Lord's dad, there are times for every father where they become afraid. Every dad has times of fear. If you can't admit that, it's good to just go ahead and admit it. No one in my family knows that. Well, actually, they probably do. Actually, they all do know that. They still respect you in spite of that. But we all have times of fear. Sometimes it's a new fear. Sometimes it's a reoccurring fear. True? New fears, reoccurring fears, they both come. We all have armies of Babylon, if you will, coming against us. Things that are real. In life, there'll be new challenges. Sometimes there'll be a new trial or a new obstacle. Maybe it's laid off from a job. That's hard. Perhaps it's a health battle. That's very hard. Or a family crisis. Fear and anxiety can quickly come in, and it reminds us that we really have no control over anything. Do we? We were at the men's study the other night, and one guy, who I will not mention, was sitting in the chair just giving us testimony when the chair gave way. You know the old thing, if you have faith to sit in a chair, you know, it takes a certain amount of faith. It really does, because we don't have control over anything. Not your tire going flat, not someone else running into you, not 
you know, the company shutting down, none of those things. We don't have control, and we can't stop an army from advancing against us even when before they had never experienced this. And even before, it doesn't appear that they had ever had the same level of fear. The Babylonian army was dreadful. They became afraid. But a wise man never forgets that apart from the Lord, he's absolutely defenseless. David started to believe in his own press. I don't need to go to battle. I delegate that stuff to everybody else. I'm good at myself, and he falls, doesn't he? But a wise man humbly trusts in the Lord and cries out for deliverance. Listen to this quote by D.L. Moody. This is an important one for all the men, all the dads. When a man thinks he's got a good deal of strength and he is self-confident, you may look for his downfall. It may be years before it comes to light, but it has already commenced. Wow. He says when a man thinks he's had a good deal of strength and is self-confident, not God-confident, self-confident, you can look for his downfall. It may be years before it comes light, but it has already commenced. Jesus said great was the fall of that house built on sand, didn't he? We're not built on the rock. We're weak, and their strength comes from the Lord. Where do weak men go? Well, look what it says in verse 11. It said that they... Let us go to Jerusalem. Weak men run to the mountain of the Lord. Let us go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the Lord's city. The temple was there. The Holy of Holies was there. The presence, the Shekinah glory of God was there. In fact, they're speaking with Jeremiah the prophet in the temple when the object lesson of the bowls of wine are presented. Yes, they were strong men that became weak men, that became wise men, that we're in the temple, and God says, I've got your back and your front. And you won't fall if I'm with you. Jeremiah himself would be delivered from the Babylonian army amazingly. He'd be given, when everyone else would fall, he would not. And let's look at the final thing. Men of weakness was the last. Men of the Lord. And the, uh, what do we see by the Lord in verses 18 and 19? Thus saith the Lord of hosts, because you've obeyed, the commandment of Jonadab your father kept all the precepts that he's commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who's way above Nebuchadnezzar, Jonadab shall never lack a man to stand before me. Never will he lack a man. The worldly and fleshly climate of Judah and almost all of society, they looked on at the sons of Jonadab and they probably shook their heads with pity. These poor sons of Jonadab. These poor nomads. They don't get to have wine like us. They don't get the beautiful house. They don't get to produce wealth like us. They don't get to have fun like us. They don't get to worship other gods like us. They are missing out on everything. And God says, yeah, but they won't be destroyed like you. Because that, you go back up there to verses uh, 14 and 15. And you see that God's already pre-warned Israel. So you, you've adopted your own standard where Jonadab and his sons have kept my standard and even in the obedience to their father have even had a better standard than even I gave to the children of Israel because they desire to live as sojourners and different, separate from this world. The world looked at them like they probably were crazy, you know? 
I'll close with a, uh, and I know I've gone a little longer today than I wanted to, but this is important stuff. I'll close with a story that Damian Kyle told all of us as men uh, at, the, at the East Coast Pastors Conference. Damian's uh, pastor of Calvary Chapel Modesto. And he, he said it came to his mind uh, uh, something that happened way back when he was in middle school. Any of you remember when you were in middle school? He remembered out of the blue recently how when he was in middle school and running track, uh, it was a big track meet, and there was this one guy on the track team that ran the mile named Greg. And Greg wore big, uh, big kind of glasses, bottle neck kind, you know, bottle kind of glasses, back when it wasn't cool to wear them. You know, today people are wearing kind of all these different glasses. This wasn't cool. And Greg, uh, he was a little overweight. Uh, he, when he ran, his feet would thud. And uh, he was really, really smart, super smart, but not athletic. But somehow they let him on the track team, and he ran the mile. And when it came time for him to run, uh, he was lapped by every single other person on the track. In other words, they had ran three laps completely, and he was just starting his second lap. They all finish, and they're putting. And while he was running, you know, middle school kids—they're not real friendly. Middle school kids were yelling from the stands, mocking him, laughing at him, pointing at him, just having a blast mocking and ridiculing this guy who was running on the track with the glasses, tape there, everything, running. True story, right there in Central California, running around the track. But you know what? Damien goes, and I wonder, what was he thinking as all these people were saying this stuff? What's going on in his mind as he goes around? I th- he's got to just run off the track and give up, but he doesn't. He starts the third lap. And all of a sudden, now everyone in the whole, everyone in all the other track and field events stops what they're doing. He said it was weird. He goes, everything came to a stop. The javelin throw stopped, the, the jump stopped, everything, the high jump stopped. Everyone stopped because there's only one man on the track all by himself, thudding through the you know, each, each step. There's no one else on the track now. Everyone is off. There's one single individual, and you can hear his thuds. The place gets really quiet. Then it gets up to the fourth and final lap. The place, a buzz starts to happen, and before you know it, every single person is cheering, and Greg finishes. And he goes, I kid you not, he goes, after that, no one remembered who won any other event that day. No one remembered who won the 100-meter dash. No one actually remembers who won the mile. He goes, all people could talk about for weeks was Greg and his resolve. You know, dads, the the world may look at you and say, you poor fellow, you. You really think that going to church and investing in your kids and not having it all and not making more money, you, you don't get to take our vacations. You don't get to do all this stuff. You don't get to do any of that stuff. And they look at you and with pity. But someday, you finish the race, they'll look at you and say, wow, you were right. You didn't give up. Even when you heard all the voices and the enemy puts in your head too. Amen? Let's stand as we close. What a blessing it is to know that, you know, we may not get the approval of men, 
But dads, we can have the approval of our Heavenly Father. Amen? When our life ends, we won't stand before our boss at work or our neighbor who just got a brand new barbecue that's nicer than ours. Right? They're not going to be the one handing out the medals. It's the Lord Jesus. Amen? And he's looking at who's running the race, even when people are laughing. You, you, don't you think Jonadab and his sons got laughed at a lot? But then when the end came, they were still standing. Jeremiah was still standing. Abraham was still standing. The Lord says, my servants will be the ones standing. And guys, that's the legacy. But not only wants you and I to stand, but he wants our kids and their kids and their kids and their kids. I, I'm always fascinated that men of ain't the patriarchs like Abraham, they actually cared about generations way after them. It's hard to get people today to care about anything beyond today or next week. But I don't know about you, but even I, I'm not even a grand, I only have, my oldest daughter is 13. I already think about grandkids, if the Lord should tarry. We want a legacy, amen? Let's close in a couple of verses and uh, let's worship for just a moment and then I'll come up and close in prayer.